welcome to Night School, the podcast where I bring on experts in the fields of science, history, and all corners of academia to dissect the genre films we love to uncover what the movies got right, what they got wrong, and where the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. As always, I'm your host, Graham Skipper, and while I am excited about all of our guests on the show, today I am nerding out particularly hard because this gentleman was the science advisor on my favorite television show of all time. Dr. Kevin Grazier is a planetary scientist, known not only as the science consultant on Battlestar Galactica, my favorite show, in case you were wondering, as well as films like Gravity and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, but even more astonishingly, he was the science planning engineer and investigation scientist for the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn's moon Titan. He is currently the staff scientist for Mast and Space Systems, where they are currently planning a mission to the moon in 2023. How amazing is that? Uh, I am beyond thrilled to have him here to talk to us about the Alien franchise and sci-fi horror in general. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm very excited to see how right uh, maybe these movies are about the actual science behind them. So, Dr. Grazier, welcome. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, you know, when I first got put in touch with you, I and, and I invited you to come on. We talked about a few different movies that maybe we could talk about, and one that you specifically brought up uh, was the Alien franchise. And so as a jumping off point, I'm sort of curious about your relationship with that franchise and why that was something that you were particularly interested in talking about. Well, probably because um, it's the more science fiction-y of the, I think, the horror franchises. You have other science fiction horror films, but this is the really, I think, the, the most well-known uh, genre-crossing uh, series of films and and other other um, productions. You have you have a lot of video games too, and and you know today I think we kind of have to count those because they're you know they're every bit as scripted. In fact, some some of my uh, co um, coworkers on Battlestar actually wrote one of the Aliens video games. Oh, amazing! Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a wide-reaching franchise, and of course, which with the most uh, recent films. Uh, you include sort of this even greater, older mythology into everything uh, that, that of course, is a little bit hit and miss for some. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely one of the most uh, epic of the of the sci-fi horror franchises. It is. We could also talk how I got fired on an Aliens film, too. I would love to hear about that. <laughs> That's how Hollywood happens, folks. You know, it is. And I was taking a screenwriting class once, and they said, if you work in this industry and, and for any length of time, you will get fired. You need to accept that up front. And it was, it's, it's much more uh, dramatic sounding to describe it than it to, in, in grand detail or in gross overview than it is in the details. So long story short, I was, I was, um, I was a science advisor on a film that was essentially, I think it, it, it visually morphed into um, I'm blanking on the name of the last one, but it wasn't. Um, uh, Covenant. Covenant, yes, it, but it was. It was they they shoved in uh, Prometheus before it then, but it it, it wasn't quite. I mean, there's there's elements of this film in both of those those movies, and this is what happened is I I had a deadline. I, I sent off my stuff, and the email didn't make it. And these days, that still happens on. Well, this wasn't. This was like you know a decade ago now, but you know it it still happens on occasion. So. About a month later, I hadn't heard anything, and I asked him, "Did you get my my input?" "No, we didn't. Where was it?" "Oh, you could have asked, you know." And so, yeah, yeah. so <sighs> so close yet so far. Yeah, okay, it's you know, it was just a big, you know, I I could have looped back and said, "Did you get it sooner?" I didn't because I was busy, but 
I, like I said, not that exciting of a story. So, but but I can say I did work on an Aliens film ever so briefly. Well, that's more than most can say, and that's still very exciting. Um, you know, I this is obviously it's a horror podcast, and this is a, a podcast about sort of the cross section between horror and and science, uh, and specifically horror and sci-fi and and the actual science of it, and obviously astrophysics and and the stuff that you specifically work on is is a major part of that subgenre. And I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the intersection between science fiction and reality in in films and in media, um, and how how often do they cross over in terms of like validity, and how how often is it just thrown out the window for creativity? There's a lot to unpack what you just asked, but um, so. Let me start with one fundamental premise, and I think um, it's something the Aliens franchises do reasonably well. Um, I would say that Prometheus probably broke the mold a little bit, but um, one thing that people have to realize is that it's more important for writers and and the the director, for, you know, in, in film to follow the rules of their universe than it is to follow the rules of this universe. I get asked all the time, well, how do you, can you stand watching Star Wars movies or, or things like that? And the fact is they follow their own rules. Once you set the rules, they created that universe. And, you know, and so as long as they don't violate their own rules, I'm okay with things like lightsabers or, or the William Falcon making the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs or, or whatever it is. So um, that's, that's, you know, upfront, as long as you stick by your own rules. Now, some of the problems that maybe people had with Prometheus was that in some cases there weren't rules. Uh, a friend of mine uh, complained pretty vociferously that the black goo had no rules and it did in the moment what they needed it to do. And that's, that's frustrating to anybody because you don't, you can't figure out what the rules are, but when you stick to your own rules and again, aliens, the franchise still does it pretty well, then, um, then you're good. So, then, then, so you've set your bar, and then it, it passes to what is your personal bar as far as what are you willing to accept? Because sometimes, even if they've created their own rules, they will still pull you out of drama. And the whole point of, of having a science advisor and getting the science as right as possible is not to create um, what, what we call my books, um, the Hollywood science books, an oh, please moment. You know, this moment, the no that that moment yeah um so yeah you're never you're trying to avoid that um the video game industry has a good term for that it's called an immersion break hmm. and um you trying to create you trying to prevent the immersion break the point at which your viewer is no longer immersed in your creative vision and they are now a person sitting in the 21st century among four walls a ceiling and a floor and just shaking their head going no i'm, I'm not buying it so you want to avoid that and you, and you can do that, you can create that by breaking your rules and breaking the rules of this universe too hard, if that makes, if I made sense with that. That makes total sense, total sense, yeah. Um, and so so despite the fact that, I mean, I know people, as soon as a movie comes out these days or even a new episode of TV, there's people jumping online to try to try to gripe out the science, but it's, it's it really is more about sticking by your own rules. And, and science advisors, we try to make it the science as correct as possible and still allow storytellers to tell the story they want to tell. Um, you know, one of the things that 
you know, to piggyback on that, that sort of bothered me about Prometheus was that the, you know, here we are, they keep talking about this is a trillion dollar mission and that they've got the best scientists on the planet that are going on this thing. And then you have an astrobiologist that's walking up to some alien snake creature and is taking off his helmet and like saying, Gucci, Gucci, Goo to it, you know, which is not something that I would imagine an actual astrobiologist in that situation would do. Yeah, that is, that was one of my big issues too, is that you have this, this muscled alien killing machine and he's basically saying, here, puppy, puppy, puppy. And no, that, that didn't do it for me either. That was an oh, please moment for me. Yeah. Um, um, so so let's, you know, sort of go back to the franchise, to, to the original film, which I think, in my opinion, has some of the best characterization of what actual, like, like blue-collar space workers would be. What an actual crew that's on a, uh, a the Nostromo is a towing vessel, a commercial towing vessel. And I have some questions about that. But I, I wanted to ask you, this is a question I've had for a long time, and it's in the very opening shots of the film, when we see everybody wake up from what I think they call hypersleep, you know, they're in these pods. And I want to just ask you, what's the idea behind, and you see this in a lot of science fiction films, this idea of like, you're going to go sleep in a pod for a long time. What's the idea behind that? And is there any like scientific reality behind something like that? I think this is going to be one of those things where science fiction thought of it first, and then we sort of backfill on how that's going to happen. Um, I think with science fiction having thought of it, we'll say, okay, how do we do that? So right now, um, people don't hibernate. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of animals that's supposed to hibernate don't even officially hibernate. So hibernation is kind of a fairly narrow, narrowly defined terms. There's other forms of torpor and, and um, metabolic, uh, what's the word? Decreasing your metabolic rate to survive a winter or a long-term uh, uh, a prolonged period without food and water and things like that. So um, right now, I think that's something that we're not really prepared to do, but there are, you know, there's research in, in, into doing it. A friend of mine actually suggested, um, I mentioned our Hollywood science books and, and we, uh, we have a series of books um, about the depiction of science, scientists and the culture of science and TV and film. And one of the things we're looking at covering in the third book is in fact, suspended animation and the exact question you just asked. And a friend of mine who um, is a biomedical engineer, he said, look at tetrodotoxins. Those are your cone snail or your, um, you know, the, the toxin and puffer fish that, that periodically yeah, sure. kill people if they're not prepared correctly, those. Yeah. And what they do is they, they will um, um, both kill you and protect certain, certain um, parts of your system at the same time. So they could potentially be used um, as, as a starting point for research into putting people into suspended animation. And is the, is the idea behind that, because it's going to take so long for these you know, missions to happen, that if you can put somebody into suspended animation, then they're going to just sleep through it? Or how do you stop them from like aging? Well, you just, you, there's two questions there. You, you asked, what is the point behind it and how do you stop them from aging? So let's, let's go to the first question. And, and we're at a unique point in time to answer that. How many people are experiencing extreme loneliness from the, um, the pandemic? Mm. Just, and, and you can jump on a, on a Zoom session or you can jump online. You can talk to friends and people are still getting lonely and feeling isolating because they're isolated because there's no human connection. So um, we're seeing right now in real time one of the important parts of the necessity for um, for that is that people are, might feel disconnected. At the same time, 
you also have people crammed in an enclosed quarters um, for an extended period of time who are going to be getting on each other's nerves. The, um, if you remember the, the biosphere experiments, they created this, 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 this supposedly self-contained biosphere in Arizona. Um, they pretty quickly divided into two factions who were at each other's throats wow. while they were in this. And um, so, yeah, it, it almost became the, the jets and the sharks you know, in, in, a, in, in the biosphere kind of kind of situation. So, so not quite the same as the Pauly Shore movie. No. <laughs> that that classic of of uh, of a very truthful science fiction um, for a different reason right yes <laughs> uh now but so yeah on to the next part how do you stop people from aging what's that process um i don't know that you can and i don't know that's something that we've solved yet and if it's a, a few year mission where you're just trying to keep people from either getting too lonely or or or, or you know killing each other and and, and essentially preserving their mental health I don't think that really matters, but I don't know that we can. I mean, I know you know that there are a lot of studies that are looking at longevity and, um, you know, you can eat healthier, you can do a lot of things, but at some point in time, it becomes an engineering problem. How do you clear out um, certain kinds of toxins that build up? How do you repair um, telomeres, the, the end, end caps of your DNA that gets shorter, that gets shorter over time and, and who's, and that's part of the aging process is, is um your your dna telomeres the, the end caps basically so um it might just be an engineering problem in the end that we have to figure out how to go in and re, you know repair this and essentially you're putting energy in the system to combat the second law of thermodynamics or the entropy the fact that things break down over time so i think the studies into longevity will um for human longevity while we're awake will be key in that point to keeping people both asleep um, or suspended as you, as you wish. And, um, and both not aging is, so you, don't, you don't want to open your chamber and have everybody be, you know, uh, you know, dusting some bones, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and as a part of that too, the idea of just interstellar radiation, like if we're going between stars, like obviously there's a lot of funky stuff out there that's I'm sure going to wreck our bodies. Um, and is that also a part of it, a part of it, or is that something engineering wise that you feel ships in the future will be able to have figured out like how to block that radiation from certain people? Well, we're gonna have to figure that out sooner rather than later, because in, in you're right, there are things floating between stars, cosmic rays that, that are extremely high energy and, and will do horrible things to you. But we're also near a, a, a fairly, a good sized star. And um, so there's a lot of, our, our sun throws out a lot of stuff. So if we're just going to go to Mars, um, we're going to have to figure out how to combat that or as we move within the solar system. So by the time we go to other planets, that will be something we will have solved. Um, uh, so so speak, speaking of that, that's a great segue into my next question. Okay. So the Nostromo, uh, we talked about briefly before, you know, it's their ship in the first film. It's a commercial towing vessel, uh, seemingly kind of a tugboat for big, large amounts of mineral ore. Um, and what we know is that LV-426, the planet that the aliens are discovered on, is 39 light years from Earth. So I'm curious about the, the length of time of this mission. And assuming, you know, that this ship can go super fast, it appears that it's not doing like warp speed like in Star Trek or something, but is instead, uh, you know, going at, at a, I'm sure, a clip. Um, but if it's going to some further location, further than 39 light years, 
and then it comes, you know, and on its way back, like how long of a mission are we talking here? Well, let me let me tell you something that, that I noticed about um, Prometheus. I'll tell you that there's a there's a subtlety baked into the, the early part of Prometheus. Um, when I was working on, I can't even remember the name of the film when it was the early Aliens version. It wasn't called Prometheus, nor was it called um, none of the movies, you know, so it had, it had its own name. But one of the things you notice, I noticed in there that they talk about it being 37 light years away. Well, if you are into, if you ever followed any UFO lore and gone down that rabbit hole, 37 light years away is where Zeta Reticuli is. And that is supposedly where the grays come from, the grays of Betty and Barney Hill fame, the grays oh, of file fame. And so when I, I realized, I saw that and I said, oh, so these are reticulum grays. And I just basically said, oh, so we could do this, this, and this. And the producer I was talking to as well, you just guessed the plot of our first movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so you'll notice that in the opening of Prometheus, they give the distance in kilometers. And it's a really big number, but it prevents you from like knowing how far away it is in light years. It present, kind of prevents you from doing that calculation in your head. But that's fun. Yeah, so... That's real subtle that that I only noticed because I because I made that connection uh, when I was, you know, had the script in front of me and I made maybe too many connections. So they said, oh, we're just going to put it in kilometers. So so yeah. it's out there, but no one's going to be sitting here and calculating. Well, I can't say that because people do stuff like this, <laughs> but they'll sit there with their, their phone going, ah, ah, I know where they are. <laughs> so. That's a really that's that's a, a very fun and, and very strange uh uh, sort of coincidence not coincidence but like connection there and I'm yeah I don't know I'm curious about that that connection in terms of the greater lore of like them saying oh the grays are really the ones that have been pulling the strings the whole time well there, I think I think the grays are and the engineers might be kind of synonymous I don't know but, yeah yeah that's fun um, um now we're back to what you were asking um I only covered a, a, a small smidgen of that because I I kind of found a cool side topic but great <laughs> but, but what else were you were you asking i just again? want to know how how long do, how long is a voyage like that you know how long it depends, is it? How, it depends how fast you get you can get up to i mean it's um uh it's not obvious because you you have to actually do that calculation um to to determine the relativistic shortening because the faster you go the closer the, the these bodies are you know what i mean the, in yeah in, so there's all that, but I mean, if you went, if if you odd quirk, if you went at 0.71 times the speed of light, you would get to Zeta Reticuli in 37 years. It's 37 light years away. That's you on the mission. It would be different for somebody in the rest frame back at Earth. But, right. But Everybody would be older back on Earth, right? A lot older. Yeah. Well, not a lot, but a significant amount older. But yeah. But if you, but at basically 71. 70.7 if you want to square root of two over two <laughs> um the, that um is the point at which one you travel one light year in one year of your time when you take into, con into consideration the relativistic shortening okay well, so at that at that at 70 percent to 71 percent the speed of light you, it will take you 37 years to get 37 light years away okay yeah so basically so you would definitely need that sleeping bod because nobody wants to be on an 80-year mission just living there biding your time yeah, i think we'd assume that's a one-way mission so yeah well but they're heading back to earth that's what they say is they're, that they're on their way back to earth with this mineral war and they Supposedly, get but they get sidetracked of course that doesn't go very well for them um no. 
Um, I so so seeing as how you're a planetary scientist, I want to ask you a little bit about LV426, which which is a moon, it's not a planet. Um, but of course, when we land, it's like got this crazy intense weather, you know, them trying to land, it's like this really, really ferocious, chaotic uh atmosphere that they're coming down through. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about about moons. One, can a moon have weather? And two, uh seeing as how it's orbiting other bodies and you know maybe there's other moons around how does that kind of gravity like if it's surround if it's by a planet that's larger than it how does gravity affect being on the planet like even if if a person's standing there or or the 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 science of the planet itself so as far as moons having weather yes i mean we only have one moon in the solar system that has an appreciable atmosphere and that's saturn's moons titan um its atmosphere is actually thicker than ours it's just different composition and the gravity there is a small fraction of ours. It's just that um, the concept of escape velocity, you know, we have to shoot a rocket at a certain speed to get it off the earth. And so it's not going to come falling back. So that concept is, is independent of the mass of the object. So the escape velocity for a rocket ship is the same as the escape velocity for an atom or a molecule. So the hotter the planet is, the faster the atoms are moving and the more likely they are to achieve escape velocity. Huh. Titan is out at the out near, um, you know, nine and a half times Earth's distance um, from the sun. So it's cold out there and they get about a hundredth of the, of the eh, about 90th of the sunlight. So therefore it's cold, therefore less achieve escape velocity. It's easier to hang on to an atmosphere out there. Hmm. So the fact that LB-426 has a, a thick atmosphere or a thick breathable Earth-like atmosphere, it means it's probably Earth-like. As, as far as size, and there's no constraint saying you can't have an Earth-sized moon. Sure. And and so it's probably and, and the fact that stormy may or may not mean anything. I mean, we have pretty intense storms here, and, and they may have just been unlucky as far as you know when they landed. But if we assume maybe there's storms all the time, well, storms are driven by insulation, the amount of sunlight you're getting. So if we have an atmosphere and a big storm we're assuming that it's a it's a good sized planet or it's a good sized moon you know it's a planet sized moon and it's also um gets a fair amount of heat from either being close to the sun or from the um planet it's orbiting so you can receive heat from the planet that you're orbiting yeah both um both jupiter and saturn actually emit more infrared radiation than they absorb from the sun Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, that's why if you were standing on the moon Io, um, you'd get fried in, in pretty quickly. So those scenes from Outland where people's heads explode from the, the 80s movie, the Sean Connery yeah. movie, yeah, that wouldn't happen. First, it wouldn't happen anyway, just because you don't explode in a vacuum, but you'd get fried before you, right from Jupiter's radiation before you got, um, had a chance to pop. Wow. It's the, like a really, really horrible sunburn, but it's a, it's a planet burn. One way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is now I'm curious about like the gravity because I've heard stuff. You know, you hear about like Europa orbiting Jupiter and having the tidal forces, you know, of orbiting that giant planet, sort of affecting the inside of of the moon. Um, how I don't know, just sort of how does that work, and and what might a situation on something like LV four two six be? Um, so I'm reaching up to grab. A paperclip. You see this? Um, you take a paperclip and you open it up 
and you bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until it breaks, unless it's a cheap aluminum kind, if it's the old the steel ones, and you grab the tip, it'll feel warm. Or if you ever if you ever hacksawed a bolt before, um, you don't touch the bolt when it falls to the ground because it's pretty it's pretty toasty. I actually burned myself on a bolt two weeks ago, so that's fresh in my memory. So anyway, um, so the, the point is, um, let's look at Io first. It's in, it's closer to Jupiter, and um, it's it's the only rocky moon in the outer solar system. All the rest of them have surfaces made of ice because to a planetary scientist in the outer solar system, we consider ice to be a rock. It's always solid, and it's a main component of all the exteriors of all these moons. So it's a rock out there. It's a different way of thinking. But Io is not. Io is, is a big chunk of rock as we think of it in the inner solar system. And its orbit is slightly out of round. It's got a slight what we call eccentricity. Okay. So closer, it feels a stretch of Jupiter more. I'm going to do another prop. Okay. This isn't Io, it's Mars, but it's about the same color. So as it gets closer to Jupiter, it gets stretched. And then as it recedes, relax. So I mean, it's going around and around and around. But at one point, it's closer. And at one point, it's farther. You know, it's close and far. So it gets stretched, relaxed, stretched, relaxed, stretched, relaxed. And that constant flexing creates internal heat, which is why Io was predicted in advance just based on its orbit to be a, an extremely volcanic body. And it was. It's the most volcanic body in the solar system. Huh. Europa is further out. And its orbit is more circular. So there's less uh, flexing and relaxing, and there's less heat put into the system, but it's ice. So you don't need as much heat to melt that. And that small amount of tidal flexing is enough to keep, we believe, a large part of Europa uh, liquid underneath an icy crust. Interesting. Interesting. Does that answer your question? It sure does. Yeah, no, it sure does. I mean, all that stuff's, it's just, it, it's amazing to me how, you know, like, they, they teach you about how Jupiter is sort of a failed star, you know, that like these big gas giants uh, could have become stars had they been bigger uh, and nuclear fusion could have happened, but they didn't. Um, and yet what you're saying is that in a way it still sort of acts like a star. Yeah. And in calling Jupiter a failed star, it, it would, there's a yeah, but component to that. It would need about 84 times the mass it has to be a star. But factors of 100 in, in astronomy sometimes aren't that hard to come by. So it just it sure. depends on what you start your disk with. And there's, there's all sorts of factors in, involved in that. But, but yeah, in, and what's interesting is Jupiter is about as big as a planet can be. Because if you started adding mass to it, like remember 2010 when they added mass to Jupiter to ignite it? Yes. Yes. When you add mass to it, it would actually compress under its own mass. And get smaller and smaller and then as you added math then it would start to to grow again and once it got to be around the size maybe slightly larger than jupiter is now then it would ignite and turn into a star so huh. so planets can come a lot more massive than jupiter but that aren't made it come much bigger interesting yeah that's wow. definitely something that's hard to kind of wrap your head around is the difference between mass and size um you know like a, a neutron star can be incredibly massive and still very small right uh, yeah interesting um so you know so another but, well go but, ahead, but, go ahead. So let's go back so back um to kind of sum up about the notion of a planet you know being habitable and stuff sure it just you know it's a matter of does it have enough gravity to hold on to an atmosphere and is the the balance of the gravity 
versus how hot the atmosphere is enough for it to hang on to, or will it escape? I mean, you'll notice that um, our, our neighbors, Mars and um, uh, Venus. Venus. No, I'm, 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 my, my brain was going down the, 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 this, this argument before I finished that sentence. <laughs> um, so you look at the kind of the, the main components of atmospheres that are delivered to things like the inner solar system from comets. And you end up with, with things like water, carbon dioxide, ammonia, and methane. Those are your big ices that are in comets that deliver, you know, got delivered to the inner solar system. But these all have just carbon dioxide. What happened? Well, carbon dioxide is a much bigger molecule, much more massive molecule than these other gases, than water, than ammonia, and methane, which are all kind of similarly mass, similar mass, but carbon dioxide is much bigger. It's harder to move. It's harder to accelerate to escape velocity. So Venus is really hot, but it's, you know, it's similar size to Earth. So the CO2 is the thing that mostly didn't, didn't accelerate off, off. Whereas Mars is a lot less massive. It's only got roughly 39% Earth's gravity at the surface, um, but it's colder. So it was able to hang on to the carbon dioxide, which couldn't get accelerated to, to leave the planet. So that explains why carbon dioxide is pretty common in these, in these um, planets. And the question, a bigger question about LV-426 isn't, could it have an atmosphere and be a moon? It's probably why does it have a a, a breathable atmosphere? Is is a bigger question, you know? And because on our planet, our planet, our first atmosphere was like Venus, it was carbon dioxide. It was it was unbreathable for us. Um, we believe that there was a large impact. I mean, a, a massive impact. Something the size of Mars hit Earth, and that collision forced off, blew off our first atmosphere. And then as Earth, re, you know kind of reformed, re turned to a sphere, whatever, the splatter turned into our moon, um, the splatter of that impact. Um, then we formed a second atmosphere that was thinner and conducive for life. And that life literally poisoned its own environment. It exhaled a, a very corrosive gas, oxygen, huh. that it didn't like. It, you know, it was a toxin to it, but it was, it was necessary for us. So, so couple things. Um, so that's why we, um, the, 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 the interesting question there is how did LB-426 end up with a breathable atmosphere? Because we had a major cat cataclysm to, to create our breathable atmosphere sure. and life is what gave us what we can breathe, early life. Second, um, completely different topic when people say about climate change, humans can't modify our environment. We can't change all of earth. Well, microorganisms did so. So life can change. Life can so change, can, and it can change. Yes, you can change your, your environment. So, so the question about LB four twenty six is is why is there a breathable atmosphere? And there's a question there, and another kind of interesting thing is I don't think anybody's ever explored. This isn't really we're, we're kind of moving away from horror more into straight science fiction. Is that you know it took um, many millions of years for life the first life to form on Earth, and like like hundreds of millions of years. Our oldest fossils are between three point five and three point eight billion years from ago. So it took several hundred million years. Arrakis in Dune is, um, it orbits Canopus, and that is a very large star, and this is counterintuitive, but large stars live short lifetimes. The bigger the star, the shorter the lifetime. Huh. They go through their fuel faster. Canopus only has a 10 million year lifespan. Oh, so yeah. the implication there is that, number one, for it to be, Arrakis to be habitable, it had to have been terraformed. And two, the sandworms can't possibly be indigenous. 
<laughs> somebody brought the sandworms there. Yep. I, again, I don't know that anybody's ever explored that, but that's a an obvious implication by Canopus being being a uh, the star that around which Arrakis orbits. That would be that'd be a great story about you know that some freighter ship that goes to early Arrakis and you know there's like a tiny little worm on the ship that somehow gets out into the sand and that's how the sandworms began. Or they, 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 I can't remember what they're called. They, they do have the the larva are in, you know in the in the Dune book. They're they're smaller. They're they're tiny. Well, they're tiny. You know, but yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So, well, interesting. Interesting. So I think I've overanswered your question and gone kind of a little far afield there, but <laughs> no, I love this stuff. This is exactly why I wanted you to come on. This is great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm to piggyback on talking about LV426 and how and what you know, trying to figure out why it has the atmosphere it does, why it's breathable. In in aliens, they're talking about trying to terraform it and trying to make it. You know, obviously it is habitable, but it appears to be kind of a shitty place to live. It seems that there's just constant storms and rainfall and all this stuff. Um, could you talk a little bit about terraforming and would that be beneficial on a place like LV426? You know, that's, you've kind of pointed out a contradiction because LV426, you can go there, it's breathable. Their atmosphere is breathable. I mean, it was kind of crummy, but then they did have to wear their, their, their suits, but they, they went inside the spacecraft and took their helmets off. And there's no evidence that the, the spacecraft, um, and this is, we're talking the first alien film here, was mm -hmm. it was breached. Was I mean, they, they walked right in, right? Yeah. And so that's that's by now that's the the endemic atmosphere that's the planetary atmosphere. So and they did they took their helmet off? Well, actually, did they take their helmet off? I don't remember. Well, yeah. Well, he does, and he obviously he gets well. One the well, no, the, the alien made it through his helmet because um, in the book um, he can see the tongue lapping at the um, the faceplate, uh -huh. and I, I presume it was applying acid. Yes, well, it was applying acid to the thing, and then it onto right. his face and, and provides him provides him oxygen. But they, um, yeah, and it, it stuck a it stuck a tube down his throat and was giving him oxygen. Yeah, but then in the second one, we do see them walking around completely without helmets. And but they've had the the processing plants there at that point. I you know the probably the implication there is that the um, atmosphere was similar to Earth in its transition phase, and it's when it had its second atmosphere, and it's just not. It just probably needs a kick in the pants to. To be something that we can utilize without, you know, spacesuits and stuff. Is that something that can be done? Because I mean, obviously, Ripley's like not that much older at this point when she goes back, and they've already begun this terraforming process, and the air is not breathable. How long a process is that? Well, again, couple, there's a couple answers here. Um, one of the most common inaccuracies in TV and film is the rate at which the, at which things happen. Rates are always bumped up to happen faster because. Um, Intro to one of the books I wrote, um, writer Jane Espenson said, um, your dramatic tension may dissipate somewhat during that realistically long wait while DNA is sequenced. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, so your rates are almost always bumped up. And that's a common inaccuracy and that we kind of all accept for, for this thing to happen in a time span, we need it to happen during a TV show or a film. So rates are always, done. and in fact, a good example where it's not, and I, and I think this was, um, kind of unintentionally great example where rate is not changed for kind of humorous effect is in the big bang theory um there's an episode in which howard is invited to throw out the first pitch at los angeles angels game and we he learns he's, he's throwing the ball with with uh, bernadette and he learns he can't throw the ball from the pitcher's mound the 60 60 what 60 foot and a half inch um feet to the to the 
um, to the plate. Uh-huh. So we're going to have to figure out what to do here. So what he does is they says, hey, here's an idea. Let's have a rover, since he's a space, you know, a spacecraft engineer, let's have a rover deliver the ball to home plate. That's super cool. People will love that. So they get a rover there. They hand it the ball and it says, we are going to have the rover deliver the ball to home plate. And the crowd goes, yay. And then the rover starts moving at the realistic rate of about an inch a second, which would take it 12 minutes to get to home plate. And <laughs> people are already booing like before it's a few feet away. So <laughs> that's funny. And, and that's what happens when you don't kind of tweak your rates in, in sci by So back to terraforming plant. Um, you know, we don't know how long it takes. Between, I don't know how long it is between the time that uh, Nostromo is at LV426 and Sulaco is there. So we don't know. I don't know the, the gap between those. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was stated. I don't remember. I should say I don't remember. You know, I think it might actually be stated. I'm going to, you you talk while I try to look this up. So, um, and, and we don't know the details of their suspended animation, whether or not you age in it or not. I, I my suspicion is that the, the rules of their universe is that you don't. Um, because I also don't know how long it was between between when they left in the Sulaco and then they crashed land on, on you know for Alien Three with her and Jonesy. Um, it says that uh, it's fifty seven years has passed. Okay, so um, and and so clearly the the rules of their universe are that you don't age in suspended animation. Yeah. So must be nice. Uh, yeah, we could sleep with the pandemic. Yeah, right. Um, okay, so so uh, if if in in a, a I'll say real scenario with with big quotation marks, um, that sort of process of terraforming, if it were an actual thing that we could do, like let's say we go to Mars and we want to terraform it, like how long a process is that? It, it's years, decades, maybe even hundreds of years. It, it's not going to be quick. Um, uh, could we do it? Well, yeah, but. In the case of Mars, you know, I had already talked about, you know, Mars hangs on to its carbon dioxide and it doesn't hang on to much. I mean, really the Mars atmosphere is, is um, uh, about six one thousandth the thickness of ours. So it's, it's pretty paltry. And there's, there's pretty much just carbon dioxide and water vapor. And that's pretty much what composes their, that atmosphere, a little bit of water vapor. And, um, so the same problem it has with hanging on to gases like oxygen and nitrogen, it's still going to have again. So these, these things are still going to escape, so it would have to be constantly replenished. So we could change that, but there would have to be a constant source because this, these things are going to leave Mars in a slow atmosphere. And as you trap heat due to a thicker atmosphere, that's going to heat things up and things are going to escape even faster. That's going to, you know, meet even more of a resupply. Now, it's not going to be that much. I mean, you could probably grab a couple of um, objects from, icy objects from the asteroid belt or from the, the zone between Jupiter and Saturn. Or, or, but still, it's just, you're going to need a constant resupply. So could you do it? Theoretically, sure. I mean, we're, we're altering our environment. Microbes altered our, our planet in the you know, 3.8 billion years ago to the point where we had a complete change of the, the biosphere when when the, the rise of oxygen actually no one starts 200 million years ago with the rise of oxygen so um so yeah could you do it sure would it take a long time yes so do we do we speed that up in science fiction films absolutely because we want to do something with that concept sure sure um so you know you you mentioned the the pandemic and i have a question here that ties in a little bit to this you know ripley famously 
tries to uh, affect a quarantine procedure for when, when, you know, they bring their crewmate back and he's got this alien life form stuck to his head and, um, you know, and, and Dallas sort of overrules her. They said, no, come on in and had everybody listen to Ripley, then everybody would have been fine. Um, I'm curious in like the real world of NASA and of space exploration, are there, is there like official documentation that talks about like, you know, what to do in the event of space microbes or anything like that? I, in a, in a much grander sort of scale, um, everything in the space program is kind of like the, the military, but maybe even more so the military. Every single thing is very process and procedure driven. I mean, when they, when the astronauts go out on a spacewalk to do a mission, there's very little, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Improvisation. Hmm. You know exactly what you're going to do and when. And I mean, I know of, of an astronaut who improv improvised one small thing. He, he yanked a bolt free because it wasn't coming free. And he said, I don't want to come back out here. So he just yanked it open and, and he got it done. Um, <laughs> and, but um, even that was, you know, verboten. He, he, he broke pr procedure, but he had a stuck bolt and he said, ah, oh, screw it. <clears throat> and yank, and that could send you flying off, but sure. he got it done. He got, that got the mission accomplished. So, but, but even that was considered to be, and, and NASA astronauts are in part selected for their ability to follow instructions and not question them. You even see that in the beginning of gravity. You see Kowalski's kind of zooming around on that little maneuvering unit, but when they say get in, he turns instantly all business. And it's all about the procedure, about doing as you're told and do it now. And you know, and don't don't improvise. You know, Stone wants to wants to just give me a minute. No, now. So you see that in gravity, how it's very process and procedure and do what you're told and do it right away. So, so it's, that's one of the most common, I think, rules that Hollywood space shows break is just ignoring how process and procedure driven NASA really is. And in, in many cases, you wouldn't have a film if they didn't do that. It's, it's kind of like the rate question again. If they, if they, if they did strictly the process and procedure driven things that NASA do, um, you wouldn't have, you'd have a lot less of a film. I mean, you see that a lot in like for all mankind, mm. you see a lot, you, you see a little more and so there's still a little bit, they slack off a little bit, but you want, you need to have some drama. And so, but, but that's probably a little more realistic. No, it's probably a lot more realistic than most space shows on, on the process and procedures that govern what we do in space travel. And now, so what Ripley wanted to do as what was seemed like a good idea at the time would have been baked into what they do as part of, you know, exploring the, you know, the final frontier. So they would have had process and procedures in place in case you run into something and, and they didn't. So again, if you, if you follow the rules of our universe, you don't have well, in a lot of instances, you don't have a story. Yeah. Yeah. Is did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. No, of course you did. Yeah. And, and, you know, sort of the, the other part of it was, you know, is there, um, I don't know, what, this is part of another question, I guess, but what is the likelihood of us encountering something that's, you know, a multicellular organism aside, like even just like microbes, things that, that are alive in that sense, like what's the likelihood of us encountering something like that, like on another planet or another moon? You know, I think if you asked any space planetary scientist, is there life out there? They'll say, yeah. But, but it's probably microbial. 
Um, we're going to, I think, find a lot of microbes before we find anything that's multicellular. Um, I think we haven't ruled out the possibility of life in our solar system between Europa and Enceladus and, and Mars. And, and I think there's plenty of potential niches. In that. And the more we explore, the more we're finding liquid water. In every place on Earth, liquid water means life. Um, so we found plenty of niches other elsewhere in the solar system where we can have potentially liquid water. So I, I think it's only a matter of time. Um, so I think, yeah, we'll, we'll discover something out there now, whether it's going to be, you know, muscled, armored alien killing machines, you know, probably less likely simply because of the complexity it takes to get from there to here. But, um, I'm pretty sure we'll discover something eventually, you know, but what's interesting though, is, is the, another place where we just kind of close our eyes and, and say, blah, 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 is, is on the topic of, of this life actually infecting us. Because life evolves to fill a niche, hmm. and it's in a niche that you know we're prob probably a niche it doesn't like. When sure. we when we when we sent experiments in 1976 to Mars um, to uh, to look for life, the Viking spacecraft, the twin Viking spacecraft had life detection experiments aboard. And one of them involved just dumping some soil into this, this nutrient solution and seeing if something grows. And what we found is in going back under, under well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, found that there's even with terrestrial microbes, if you dump some of them into this, this very same liquid we sent to Mars, they drown. Huh. So that was like, well, yeah, that didn't work out too well because we didn't, you know, and it's, 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 it's iterative. It's you'll learn your mistakes and then you change it for the next time. So we just weren't searching probably correctly in 76 and we've learned differently and we've learned about new forms of life and we've learned about extremophile life forms. And so, but, um, but yeah, so there's probably, um, there's probably things out there. I think, I think personally, I think, well, there's life out there. I think it's only a matter of time till we find it. I think it's probably, we'll find a lot of microbes first, but I think the odds of us getting infected by something like the Andromeda strain are probably pretty low. Does it mean you don't take precautions? Absolutely not because of the implications. If it does turn out to be something communicable, which, you know, we've, I'm sure we'll be more, even more cautious now having experienced COVID. Sure. Well, and then you have the movie Life. <laughs> Yeah. And I was, I was thinking about that the entire time, uh, and I didn't bring it up because I couldn't remember the cute name they gave the organism. Um, oh, the yeah. What was it? It was something like Percy or something like that. It was something yeah, something like that. Uh, I don't remember. I mean, I could look it up, but I don't want to concentrate on my phone for too long. But but yeah, anyway, um, yeah, that thing, that broke all kinds of rules. Again, they were consistent. You know, the, 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 something that small, that strong, I had a hard time buying. So what? It's a fun movie. It's actually, it's, I thought it was surprisingly good. I, 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 went, I went out with low expectations and I was like, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I really enjoyed that film. Yeah, I really liked it too. And I love, I, I love a good nihilistic ending. I love, I, I love something that just leaves us on a downer. Well, you know, and, and before, before we, you know, wrap here, I want to point out one of my, what I consider a guilty pleasure as far as sci-fi horror films is Sunshine. Oh yes. One of my favorites. Um, yeah. Sunshine, you know, is, uh, there are all kinds of things, I, you know, with the background orbit dynamics, one thing that makes me cringe is their notion of a gravity assist. They go to Mercury for a gravity assist with Icarus 2. Now, could you use Mercury for a gravity assist? Yes, you could. But they actually go into orbit and then you, you use a gravity assist to, to gain energy to, and, and by going into orbit, you've already completely lost any 
advantage that you would have gotten by gravity assisting past Mercury. So the gravity assist is just is it's to the point where it's cringeworthy for me because that's my area. And when you, you know, if you're a scientist watching film and screwing up your science is always far a far bigger sin than screwing up anybody else's science. Uh -huh. And this is a case where they screwed up mine. Now that <laughs> said, um, the one thing I thought was interesting is um, Danny Boyle, the, the director said about Sunshine, he said that in most horror films, you have the, the baddie, the, the monster approaching our heroes out of the darkness. I wanted to do a movie where the, the, the monster approached out of the light. Ooh, I like that. I like yeah, that so a lot. I, I thought that was really cool. So, so that was kind of the basis for it. But, I, but it's something else we mentioned earlier uh, on the accuracy standpoint, we mentioned um, on IO in, in the film Outland, how people pop when exposed to the vacuum of space. Yeah. So that doesn't happen. You know, what else, you know what else doesn't happen? You don't freeze instantly and your arm, you know, shatter, doesn't shatter when you hit the, the handrail of, of Icarus One. Remember that? that, that oh, oh, I, oh, I sure do. Yeah. I sure do. Now, now here's a, a little piggyback, though, for that, because I have a question. And this ties into Alien as well. But like in, you know, at the end of Alien, obviously, Ripley blast the creature out into space out the right um and and a part of that you know she straps herself into a chair um and i believe she's in a spacesuit when that happens but in so many movies you see this explosive decompression you see people hanging on but still somehow surviving even though they're exposed to the vacuum of space is that possible well she's not really exposed to the vacuum of space yet she still has the atmosphere is all rushing past her and whether or not it's explosive depends on how big the hole is in fact mythbusters did a good a good one of those they um they they went out to an old aircraft boneyard and they they pressurized a section of a of a of a cabin of a of an airliner cabin and then they um did they um shot a hole through the the glass and it just slowly evacuated through the hole uh -huh. and then they put debt cord around the um another one and they blew it out and then you got explosive decompression so it's uh -huh. entirely dependent on the size and how you know of, and the ability of airs to rush out, but you still got air rushing past you. And if you were just blown in, into um, space, you'd have about 20 seconds or so of useful consciousness. Probably takes you a few minutes to actually perish, but you have a short amount of time of, of useful consciousness. And, but you don't, but you don't pop and you don't freeze. Is, uh, so, so the, in Event Horizon, when, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but when the kid, you know, is blasted out in space and, and Lawrence Fishburne tells him, you know, close your eyes real tight and, you know, hold your arms close to you and everything. Is that like good advice? And is that something plausible that that kid could survive that? So what would happen is you get blown into space. Is space cold? Yes. So I'm, I'm going to check through the what wouldn't happen before we get to what, what would you do? So, um, you ever notice that room temperature water is cool and room temperature air is perfectly fine? Yes. Because water is denser and water carries away your heat faster. Huh. So it's so in space, there's no air, so it's an insulator. So you have to radiate away your heat to get colder, and that takes a long time. Huh. So that's why you don't freeze. It's because of the, the way you have to transfer heat to your, your environment. Now, as far as popping, what is the air going to do? Blow out your chest? or rush out your mouth and your nose. Gonna go out your and, mouth and your nose. Right, right. So now, is it anywhere, is it trapped anywhere? Yes, it is. Um, there are small blood vessels, like in your eye and your ear and places that where, where, where blood and gases could be trapped. 
So if you get blown out to the space, you probably, you might burst blood vessels in your nose, in your eye, your eardrum might pop, but you're not gonna explode because it's all gonna rush out. And if you don't hold your breath, you're fine. Huh. If you hold your breath and you're, that, that could lead to injury, but if you just let it all, kind of let it all go. Hyperventilate, get a little air into that system and then it's all gonna rush out and then whatever happens, happens. Um, so closing your eyes, I think you're saying, you know, so that probably saying that so the, the fluids on your eye don't boil away because that's going to happen. Uh, that's probably what he was saying. But um, they did a similar, we, we did something similar in Battlestar Galactica where we, we blew a couple of people out into space to save them from a situation and then blew them into a waiting spacecraft. Yeah. And th there's a lot of subtleties that in that scene that um, we, we put in there intentionally. So in our scene in Battlestar, which is, which is kind of similar to what happened in Event Horizon and in the movie Titan AE, by the way, um, they, um, they blew somebody into space and, and in our version, they were waiting for them because this was the solution to a problem. So they blew them out, they caught them in a raptor, pressurized, bring them home, deal with the, the, the problem. So um, what you would have is that the nitrogen and other gases dissolved in your blood would, would start to come out of solution and boil. The bends you've heard about that from you yeah. scuba diving so yeah. um that would be a, a possibility and um so what you see when you see callie and the chief afterwards after they've been blown into space and caught by the raptor what you see is the next scene when you see chief in sick bay he's getting out of bed really slowly because he hurts like hell because the bends attacks the joints yeah huh. and that's intentional huh. and cool. then there's a lot of things in Battlestar. if you catch you catch you don't we just didn't point it out. So, um, and then you notice that Callie is in the next next space and she's in a hyperbaric chamber because she, she was clearly affected slightly more. And we know why, because should I give the spoiler? Because Chief is biologically different. Yes. And, um, <laughs> but, um, but you see Callie in a hyperbaric chamber. And when she looks over at her husband, look at her eye and her blood vessels had burst in her eye. I remember that shot. I know what you're talking about. And you know what? We, we spent a lot of time getting the science in that scene right and, in, in the episode in Battlestar. And then we still got complaints online. Oh, they'd freeze. Oh, they'd pop. So basically, we did another movie called The Plan. It was a, it was a pre oh, yep. prequel. Oh, yep. I know movie. well. And in the prequel movie, one character, he's, he's a Cylon. He's married to a human woman. And he's in love with her. And he knows this is now after the attack on the colonies takes place. He knows it's an only a matter of time until she finds out he's a Cylon and he just doesn't want to do that to her. He doesn't want to, you know, so he decides to end his life and, um, and make life easy on her. So he literally puts himself in an airlock, rigs it so he can blow himself out into space. So he's committing suicide. Yeah. And it's for his wife and, and, and child. And he does, it was, it was a Simon model. You remember uh -huh. he blows himself yep. out the airlock. And as a, to the people who, um, <laughs> who complained the first time we did it again where he's exposed to space and you see a close-up you see his lips are bluish and you see there's crystals around his mouth and his nose from at, where as the gas came out his his mouth and nose um the the moisture in his breath crystallized and froze huh wow we did it even we did it even even more correct the second time but we did it at all was in part a a the hell with you for the people who complain. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow, that's so cool. I well, I guess I need to start my uh, yearly rewatch of Battlestar early, uh, just to uh, to go back through and and 
look at moments like that. Uh, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, I uh, so that answer, that, that kind of indirectly answers about about um, Event Horizon. That um, I think closing your eyes was just to make sure that your moist you retain your moisture so that it, it doesn't boil off into space. You sure. Know, the vacuum. As far as holding in, um, you're you're basically you are sort of preserving heat a little bit. You're 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 preventing your extremities from being exposed. So basically, you're just keeping yourself as as you with, with the minimal amount of exposed space, or exposed surface area, and 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 then of course, you know, conversely, like if we're talking about sunshine, you know, we see what happens when you're that close to the sun and the heat that can also be in space. You know, everybody thinks of space just being very very cold, but space right. can also be really hot, right? It can be, and when you're that close to a star, you are hot. So um, yeah, so you there's a lot a lot of insulation. I mean. The amount of um, radiation decreases as one over the distance squared. So, for example, um, Earth's is one AU from the Sun, and Jupiter's about five, which means Jupiter gets one over five squared. Jupiter gets one twenty fifth amount of sunlight. Huh. Conversely, Jupiter, uh, let's say Venus. Venus is about seventy percent, roughly, the distance from from the Sun to the Earth. So it gets twice the sunlight we did. And then this is at Mercury. So they get a lot, even a lot more. So you're getting an awful lot of sunshine. It's a, it's a, there's some hot summers on Mercury. Oh yeah. Um, no, literally in, in the, um, in the sun on Mercury, it could, it could melt wet. Wow. Wow. Uh, now I got to ask you this uh, because I'm a big Pluto nerd and then, and then I want to wrap up with one last question, but um, I'm just curious. I've always been, I've always wondered if you're standing on Pluto, how bright is the sun? Like it's so far away. How, how do you, do you get any sunlight? Um, you do get sunlight. I mean, you can see stars that are light years away, right? Well, sure. Yep. Okay. So, um, but, but Pluto has a really back to kind of eccentricity about how out of round your orbit is. Mm -hmm. um, Pluto's orbit is very out of round, so it actually part of its orbit is actually closer than Neptune, and it just crossed back over in 2011. So now it's farther than Neptune for the next um, 200 and 200 years, roughly. Mm -hmm. So it's it's going to be farther, but but so its its average distance is about 39 times the Earth Sun distance. Mm -hmm. So um, one over 39. Let's say call it one over 40. So one over 40. That's what. Um, 40 squared, 800, right? I, I, hey, you're the oh, expert. Um, so 1600, <laughs> right? I, I can't even do math. It's end of the day. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a lot less sunlight than we do here. Um, God, I can't even do math. I'm going to, I, I'm the worst. Hey, hey, even just everything, even just busting out things like, oh, you know, one fortieth of the, you know, it's the distance in two hundred years is going to be going around the yeah, sixteen hundred, sixteen hundred. Yeah, I just, okay. I just had to make sure. Like I said, end of the day, and my brain's is it's turned to mush. So yeah, it gets one sixteen hundredth the sunlight that we do. So oh, do you okay. get sunlight? Yeah, but not not a lot. I mean, what what is that like a street light or something? Like it yeah, seems like that. so small. Wow, it's maybe slightly brighter, but it, it's not a lot. Wow. That's wild. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's wrap up. I just want to ask you this, um, you know, talking about alien and, and specifically, and then I guess sci-fi horror in general, once we as a species, and I hope that we as a species get to the point where we are, you know, participating in interstellar travel. Um, I, how, what do you think our biggest threat is when we go out to travel between the stars? Is it 
dangerous aliens? Is it hostile worlds? Is it each other? I think it's we have to accept the fact that the universe is trying to kill us and Earth has been extremely beneficial to us. Um, there's a lot of things that will kill us. And you know what was interesting? Um, I was a science advisor on Gravity as well, the yeah. film Gravity. And um, the Quarones, I say that plural because uh, Jonas Quaron, Alfonso's son, wrote the screenplay. Um, they were trying to simply capture a realistic um, depiction of life in space. And they wanted to show the ways in space, the space is conspiring to kill you. And when that movie came out, sure, it did great at the box office. It, it won all kinds of awards. But there were also a set of people saying, oh, the Corons hate NASA. They hate the space program. They're trying to scare people and not going into space. No, it's just you have accepted a sort of sanitized Star Trek version of the universe in which we're so many years in the future that a lot of these things we have to care about now, we don't because we've got so much technology surrounding us at that point in time. But And Star Trek is also bad about ignoring policies and procedures as well. Right. But, but I think it's just, you know, accepting the fact that there's all sorts of ways the universe can kill us. And it's just understanding all the ways, which, you know, the way the universe is not life friendly. Wow. I think it's just the, the universe as a as sort of a bulk concept is trying to kill us. And that's what we need to accept. Which makes us even existing that much more miraculous. Complete agreement. Um, wow. Well, this was amazing. Dr. Grazier, thank you so much. Uh, it, I, I'm so thankful for your time and for everything that we talked about. And uh, I, I hope that at some point we can have you on to talk even more about more crazy sci-fi horror stuff. And uh, I just, I, I love talking about stuff like this. Well, if I could put more, one, one plug before I go. Yes, I was going to ask um, you. Yes. Uh, what? Uh, please plug stuff. Um, we have a Hollywood Science series of books. We go into greater detail on a lot of things like we discussed just now um, about the depiction of science, scientists, culture of science, and TV and film. Um, we, got, we have two out. We are working on a third right now. So um, these go into a lot greater detail on the science in your favorite TV series and film. So that's Hollywood Science. Uh, right. Please, and is that, can people just find that on Amazon? Or? On Amazon. Yeah, it's on the Springer Publishing website too, but Amazon is probably easiest. Okay. And do you have a website or any place where people can follow you? I don't. I mean, you, I can always connect on LinkedIn. That's okay. All right. Great. Or Facebook, but I'm almost almost topped out on Facebook. But uh, but yeah, uh, social media. I'm I I'm on there when I'm not writing. Um, well, thank you again so much. This was great, uh, and um, I I hope to reconnect with you again and and learn even more about the fascinating science behind uh, behind our favorite scary space movies this was very very exciting for me thank you thank you have a good day um all right everybody thank you again for joining us at night school we will be back soon uh with more fascinating stuff for all of you as always our uh end music here is by the great michael tioli thank you so much and have a wonderful week